are we going to return to a more mythological understanding of reality? But boy, that just goes against everything we've been trained <laughs> at for 300 years. I so know. how would that be? I mean, how would our social, political, economic institutions survive? Hello, and welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? That's this podcast where we look at heavy things lightly. Sometimes heavy things are known as history. A lot of you out there don't like history, but today we're going to do some. We're going to look at the word secular. What is it? Where did it come from? How come some spaces are secular and you don't talk about God or Muhammad or Jesus? And how come some places aren't? That's a historical development. Today, we're going to talk about that very heavy idea, but we're going to do it lightly with Father John Strickland. He is a priest in the Orthodox tradition, but he is also a master historian with many books, including a trilogy of sorts that he's writing right now. There's actually four of them, but you got to hear from him and you got to read these books. This is Watar. Why are we talking about rabbits? This is episode 57. This. What is the secular? What is the seculum? How does it work? A history of things secular. Father, Father John Strickland, you've come on to Watar. Why are we talking about rabbits? Um, You're a good man. It's great to have you on. Father John Strickland is out in Washington. I'm going to let you introduce yourself, but I want you to know uh, I've been using your books in a lot of the things I've been trying to do in introducing First Things Foundation. And so many times they answer all these questions about this old world, new world divide. So, Father, welcome to Watar and our work here. Thanks for coming on. Why don't you tell folks about yourself a little bit out in Washington State? You bet, John. Thank you for having me. It's a it's a real pleasure to be on your show. I enjoy a lot of the um the the, the stuff you've done so far. I was watching some of the episodes and really enjoying your your guests. So I'm honored that you uh, that you invited me to be on today. You're a better man than most. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I'm a parish priest. By that's my main work. You know that's what I do um, at a parish in Pulsbo, Washington. And uh, that's located in the Kitsap Peninsula, uh, which is west of Seattle, across from Puget, across Puget Sound from Seattle. Um, so I, we have a, 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 a relatively small Orthodox uh, parish here, OCA Parish Saint Elizabeth, uh, the New Martyr. Mm-hmm. I've been here about seven years. I came here from Southern California, where I was uh, doing a lot more teaching than I've done more recently. Um, and uh, at uh, well, San now it's Diego, called right? University. Yeah, that's right. You know, uh, strictly speaking, uh, San Marcos now, but uh, University of St. Catherine was called St. Catherine College when I was there and started a podcast when I was teaching there um, called Paradise in Utopia. And um, and that just really is the kind of culmination of of, I guess it's been about a quarter of a century (laughs) that I've been teaching college. Um, And uh, and I've always loved the history of, of Christian civilization, Christendom. And, and I had a chance to put together a podcast on Ancient Faith Radio um, that provided me with the opportunity to try out some ideas. You know, it's a, it's a long history. It's from Pentecost to the present. So crazy, yeah. there's a lot of material there. And, and so, um, so I started that then. And, and more recently, since, I'm, since I moved up here about seven years ago, I, I, I've started to put it into book form. It's actually the books are different than the podcast. It's not the same thing. It's, uh, there's, there's, it's a different kind of uh, 
um, presentation of that sure. history, but but I've been doing that uh, for a while now, a few years now. I've got two volumes out, and uh, the next volume on the way, there'll be four in all. Um, the next volume on the on the way is Age of Utopia. It follows Age of Division, and then the first volume, Age of Paradise. Paradise. Uh, Age of Utopia is in manuscript, and it should be out in November. Then there's one more volume after that. Age of Utopia. Oh, there's one more after Age of Utopia. Yeah, yeah. Age of Utopia gets us to the Russian Revolution, so we still have a century of uh, of, of the history of the West that. to cover. Was that? Hey, I didn't know that. If if you all, I'm telling you, if you want a good history, I I don't care what kind of history you're after. If you want an exhaustive history, but mo- one well told, these are really good. Father, this is the stuff we were talking off camera about. Philip Sherrard, and just about what happens when your mind starts to get turned around. And my mind gets turned around in my 20s through uh, an experience living in West Africa and then an experience diving into history. Because my experience there made me think, what's happening? And why is this happening this way? What is this Islam? How do Africans get get it? And and then you, you start realizing, wait, there's Christians in Ethiopia. And then I start thinking, and I went down the rabbit hole and came out the other end, Orthodox. And your books, I feel like they were the book. The story being told is the story I learned in order for me to get clarity on this really profound worldview. So I used uh, the paradise big time when I was teaching uh, my last class with our reoccurring donors which I'll make a pitch to reoccurring donors. Hop on First Things Foundation. We love you guys. So Father, let's do this. I think the way to go using your expertise is to talk about this new world concept, which is you and I know, and I think our listeners know, a very, very, very new world concept called the secular. Something, well, I'll let you describe it. Something neutral, right? What is it in your mind after all this writing and reading and research and living as a priest? And where does it come from? Yeah. I mean, the, the word secular is just, it's just part of our modern vocabulary, isn't it? I mean, it's a right. word that just, just is there. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a neologism. If you look at, if you look at history in the long term sense, as I try to do, you know, in my project, um, it has about, well, it depends on how you measure it, but it's been prominent for no more than 500 years and really even less than that. Right. Uh, it had its origins. Um, and there's a couple of books that can be read about the, its origins as a concept, but it had its origins in the West, in, 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 in Christendom, um, and especially was promoted by uh, St. Augustine, uh, you know, and who died in the early 5th century. Right. Uh, as he tried to grapple with a different cosmology, a different worldview than had been um, widespread in Christendom for the past 300 years since it originated at Pentecost. Can I stop you right there? So historically, as succinct as you can, uh, Augustine is, he's leaving something, but not totally. What is he leaving? What, what cosmology is he moving away from? Could, can you explain that in a, I don't want to say a heartbeat, but something like six heartbeats? <laughs> yeah, nine words or less is my favorite way of putting that. <laughs> and I always exceed the nine words. Well, I mean, so I'm not a, a specialist in Augustine there. I mean, it's, it's sure. you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm depending on the research, the secondary, 
research that I've been able to do. Um, but one thing that seems to strike me as um, I'm an Orthodox Christian. So I see things, I'm, I'm, I'm Western, but I'm also an Orthodox Christian, right. which is a really kind of unusual uh, uh, kind of perspective to, to have. And, and so I see Augustine from, as it were, the East. And what we see in the East, what we see in in contemporary writings, even before Augustine, and I think we, we can trace it all the way back to to the uh, New Testament, mm-hmm. is a Christ, Christian civilization, a Christian culture, kind of a kind of a, um, a counterculture and a proto civilization that emerges from Pentecost, and I argue this in, in the first volume, mm-hmm. um, that takes its that takes its place in the world and develops its own cosmology, uh, which cosmology I would call unitary. That is to say, it sees the world as being touched by and and uh, and and uh, and and entered by divinity okay. through the incarnation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this incarnational faith that Christianity has had from day one uh, fundamentally shaped how Christians looked on the world, the cosmos, and because the incarnation um, brought God into this world, He took human flesh. He right. He he blessed things that were physical. Um, you look at the New Testament and the Old Testament too, and and there's no sense that there's a secular kind of area or of the world that's neutral without God, and then there's a sacred one. It's it's God is 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 to be found everywhere. That's right. What happens is that unitary um, cosmology, which gets its best expression by a Eastern bishop named Eusebius writing about a century before Augustine. Okay. Uh, emphasize that. Which the we would whole call world, the Dark Ages. The wet Westerners would, this is something like Dark Ages, fall of Rome. This is, they're seeing Rome fall apart and writing and trying to make sense of the world using this Christian cosmology. I just want to give folks out there, if, if you studied a little bit of history, this is something like the Dark Ages, the, the early period after the fall of Rome. Right. Yeah. I mean, Rome is sacked for the first time in 410. So that's, and and Augustine lives through it. And in fact, that's very relevant to the conversation we're having about cosmology, because Mm -hmm. before Rome is sacked in the West, and it's never sacked in the East, the new Rome, Constantinople, was the capital of the Roman Empire in its Mm -hmm. Christian form, and continued to be so for hundreds of years. But in the West, um, yes, it was sacked, and it fell apart and disintegrated. but anyway, um, there was this unitary understanding of, of the cosmos that there was uh, the presence of God was very real, very immediate in this cosmos. And therefore, the world was not separated radically from God. Now, there was very clearly a Christian doctrine about the world uh, and Christians are not of the world. You know, they're in the world. They live in the world, but they're not of the world. All that stuff. We can talk about that if we want. But Augustine witnesses First of all, the sack of Rome, 410, he didn't mm-hmm. see it firsthand, but he waited for the same armies to uh, come south to to Hippo in North Africa, where he was living. He actually dies um, while they're besieging Hippo <laughs> um, as bishop there. And he develops a strikingly different cosmology in his famous City of God. Right. And in that famous work, beautiful work, powerful work, a work that every Christian should read or be familiar with, at least at some level. Um, in that work, he distin- he creates a dualistic cosmology, not the unitary one that I think was really strong before his time, mm-hmm. but a dualistic one. 
he he recognized that this world is broken and and the fall of of Rome to the barbarians was like the wake up call as it were the the shock that made him start to think we shouldn't be too attached to and too right. uh, naive about the goodness of this world right. which Eusebius was naive he was a little too naive about it and so Augustine <laughs> got really strict and he said no this the the the, the world has this thing called the seculum in it. It's a, it's a, it's a Latin word. It, it translates the Greek word eon, which is used in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. It means age, but it specifically means of this age, of this age in this world now, mm-hmm. not the kingdom of heaven, not the eschatological age, as it were, that breaks into this world through the incarnation in God's sacramental liturgical presence in the world, mm-hmm. but rather a seculum, the seculum is this neutral space as okay. it were. That's, it's, it, he, it is a type of neutrality. It's a type. Yeah. Now he's not going to push God all the way out of that space. That Absolutely happens, not. but he doesn't Absolutely do that. Absolutely not. No, he doesn't do that, but he does, um, he does dramatically restrict his sense of where, uh, how the world can be sanctified. So, before Augustine undertakes this project in the city of God, there wasn't such a clear sense anywhere, even among in pagandom in the in pagan civilization, that there was this neutral space that was neither you know right. good or bad, right. spiritual right. or unspiritual. There was the profane, which is like you know immorality and disorder stuff like that, mm-hmm. and then there was the sacred, which is the holy, the presence of God. The Christians more or less embraced such a unitary cosmology. And then Augustine inserts into it this seculum, which now more and more uh, offers an alternative to either the sacred or the profane. And now it becomes a neutral space Mm -hmm. that Christians occupy. Now, I don't want to spend too, you know, I don't want to. Let's let's keep going, because basically it's it's going to be another five, six hundred years before that idea. A full thousand. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's a millennium before that gets acted on, you know, radically by by Renaissance humanists. So the papal the the, the papal reformations eleven hundreds they're not they're not picking that up necessarily, but they're going to use vocabulary that allows allows folks in the Renaissance to pick it up. Am I right about that? Talk, talk a little bit. So if you know your history, guys, just real quickly, if you like water, we do a lot of history. Basically, what's happening is, is the Christian worldview, now there's variations on that, are winding their way through various pagan cultures, the Goths, right? The All the Germanic tribes are picking up Christianity, but which flavors, right? And I, we don't want to get into Middle East. We can if we want to, but there's all these flavors of Christianity being picked up. And one of them is going to eventually be this flavor of the seculum. Is that, does that, am I saying that right in some ways? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think what goes on, you know, by the 11th century, and this is a really important turning point. So I'm glad you mentioned the papal reformation. Um, What happens is, so, you know, the Augustine's dualistic cosmology takes hold in the West and it's there for hundreds of years it's never it never dominates like you know in the modern West at all, but but it's it's kind of there, and then it's used as a resource to draw upon by advocates for reform, yes. namely papal reform, yes. beginning with the 11th century. So you get popes like Leo the Ninth, 
who who presides over sending the famous embassy to Constantinople under Cardinal Humbert, which results in the ex- mutual excommunications of 1054. Split. Then more famously, you've got Gregory VII, um, Hildebrand, who's more radical in trying to reform the Western Church. And as he as, as these as these papal reformers and their supporters, Peter Damien and people like that, are advocating reform of the West. They're doing two things simultaneously. One is they're demanding the East to s- submit to papal influence okay. and, and papal supremacy. Uh, that's their Eastern policy. Their Western policy is to demand that the seculum, and here's where they apply this, this concept, okay. that is to say rulers like emperors and princes and such submit to them as the spiritual authority over them. Uh-huh. So whereas you don't have secularization in the modern sense where you get this idea of a neutral territory that means has no spiritual value, you do get this radical bifurcation, this separation of two classes of, of civilization, Christendom, mm-hmm. where one is clerical and it's led by the Pope uh, yes. and it's trying to impose itself on the lay element. And the lay element is seen as kind of a res- the recipient of these reforming efforts. And so you get a really strong sense of secularization in that sense, where the the clergy take on this this role as as the leaders and the laity, the vast majority of people in the West are supposed to just follow um, the the guidance of the the reformers. Is is that because the reformers, the papal reformers, the folks who are trying to figure out really how to rule in a lot of ways are they seeing the the are they seeing the laity as in need of purification are they seeing them as as needing to be to, as needing to get out of the seculum to get to get away from that which is is not of god is, is there some sort of i don't know is there some sort of feels like a mission yeah. i mean the short answer is yes i mean in the second volume age of division i i call it the uh evangelizing the seculum, I think. Certainly, oh, yeah, that's okay. a term yeah. that I use. They're, they're trying to bring the gospel, as they understand it, uh, to bear on the seculum, which they consider to be really, you know, very, very separated from traditional Christianity and proper church order. I mean, that's, okay. that's what the papal reform is about, is to try to evangelize society. It's a remarkably spiritual movement, remarkably, you know, and, and it's and it's brilliant in a lot of what it does, the papal reformation does, but it has the side effect of bifurcating the West so that you have the church now become simply the clergy and the laity are kind of uh, passive, you know, uh, passively receiving the, in, the, the leadership of the, of the clergy in is this, this reform you, effort. Is this where you get the memes of, uh, this is out of, you hear this in, Protestantism in the United States. This is the story of they didn't let them read the Bible, this kind of thing. They didn't let people participate. The clergy, you know, forced certain perspectives on commoners. Is that, is is that where we, this is that, that period. Am I right? This is that period. This is the period where you really see a strong distinction made between the, the clergy that live uh, by a, a high standard of holiness and the laity that are kind of dismissed as second-class spiritual citizens in, in, in this yeah. society. This is the time, actually, when, um, when clerical celibacy That's becomes absolutely necessary. Now, 
there had been canons way back, hundreds of years back, there had been expectations that priests would be celibate, or if they had a wife, they would not have relations with their wife after their ordination. But by the 11th century, a great number, perhaps the majority, we don't really know, um, a great number of Western priests um, are in relationship with either wives or concubines. And and there's a strong effort as part of the Reformation, Papal I Reformation, to insist on uh, clerical celibacy. And so that's when, you know, if we want to trace clerical celibacy, you know, circa 2021, back in time, that's really the moment when, you know, over it takes over a century to get worked out. But that's kind of the moment when that happens. It's a thousand years ago. Exactly. Pretty much. Yeah. And it, it corresponds more or less with the Great Schism, the Great Division. So now you get... Let's move into the, the Renaissance and the humanists. Why? Why? I don't. I don't think it's clear yet in the story that you're telling, which is really interesting. I don't think it's clear yet why Christians would would pick up the secular, the idea of the secular, and then move God out of it. The, I don't see reasons for that yet. I don't. I don't understand why God would. Because listen, we're at a point now where. You know, there is no God in most public places in America, almost all of them. I don't know that that's necessary yet in this story. What happens? What what happens? You know, and, and as an historian, there are limits to what we were ever really going to understand. Sure, but, sure. but the story as I see it and I try to tell it, you know, is it has another dimension to the one we're just talked about. The one we've talked about so far is this dualistic cosmology in which one element um, the clergy, in this case, tries to evangelize the seculum, this neutral, non-spiritual element in society, and make it spiritual. Mm. But at this, that that begins in the 11th century, you know, wholeheartedly in the papal reformation. But the Great Schism or Great Division that I referred to, which is kind of marked by the excommunications of 1054, when the Roman Catholic Church is created and the Orthodox Church in the East with Constantinople, all of that. Is, is distinct from the Roman Catholic Church. That also plays a role in this. And so what I certainly think is the case is that way back, you know, for the first millennium, you have a real common culture, East and West, but, but the, the strength of, 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 a, of a society that really is filled with a sense of the, of the incarnational presence of God, of heavenly imminence, mm-hmm. where uh, where 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 liturgy and sacramental life and penance and and every penitential life and and everything is filled with that sense of God's presence, um, what I call paradise, that is always stronger in the in the East. Okay. Um, it's stronger in the East, and the the separation from the East puts the West on a trajectory, which I would argue. I, I know people would disagree with me, especially from the West, <laughs> but I I think it can be argued, and I do this in my books. It puts the West on a trajectory where more and more, it takes centuries to work out, um, the experience of this world, the cosmology of of Western civilization becomes less and less um, filled with that sense of divine uh, presence or heavenly imminence. And so by about the 13 or 1400s, that's several hundred years after the Papal Reformation, there are examples, we can find them, people often talk about them, of a real negative or pessimistic piety in the West. I mean, the dance of death or the, um, or the sometimes the DSE ray, 
uh, is seen as being like ominously frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, main, some of the altarpieces, uh, there's some really harrowing painting that's done in the 1300s and especially the 14 and 1500s that are just frightening. When, this is when Dante at, too, right? This is yeah, Dante. Dante is is kind of like trouble. just before this gets really striking because Dante still has a, a tremendous sense of God's presence. And, sure. And, and all of that in his divine comedy, but, but there's, there's a darkness a, there too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and certainly the purgatory doctrine, which is new at this time, there are several things that are really new in, in Western Christendom after the great division. One of them is purgatory. It can be traced back to, um, to Gregory the great um, in, in the West, but it becomes an official dogma of the Roman Catholic church only after the great schism. Right. Well, purgatory pushes paradise and the experience of heaven way off into the future. You have to die and then endure punishment and suffering. Like sometimes it's harrowing like <laughs> hell, the way it's depicted. That that kind of really puts a damper on one's experience of, of, of heavenly imminence. Well, if you think about it, I mean, I, I play fantasy football and I get on there. And if anyone on that string ever says anything religious, which they don't, but if it does, it might be the word purgatory. That's a word they would know without actually knowing much about it. Yeah. Yeah. That that limbo, right? Yeah. It's that that, right. Imminent in the minds of people who aren't even talking or thinking much about God. So it's definitely right. And so I I think it's that I, I, it's that idea, John, of, of, um, of this world, this cosmos, the cosmology, no longer, having a strong sense of God's presence and more and more emphasizing the need for punishment, the need for um, judgment, the need for um, uh, expiation, things like this. Again, looking at images of Christ, whose body is bleeding horrifically, seeing emotional images beginning with Giotto in the 14th century of people beholding the crucifixion of Christ and in agony and grief, this just gets grows by the time the Reformation comes about, um, so that it all kind of blows up, and and that's what that's what I argue in the in the second and third volumes is is that this this penitential piety, this penitential pessimism, really um, kills the healthy, uh, you might say, organic, integral. Um, culture, spiritual culture of of, of the West, of okay. Christendom. Let's do this for a second. One of the things that happens with me as I teach and now, or up until when I started First Things, is there is still a sense among a typical 17-year-old that Christianity somehow is the things you just described. Mm-hmm. Sad, it makes me have to be punished and there's and so what i'm wondering is is if that voice is still around even after all these years of trying to extinguish it how deeply did this get into the psyche of of the west it's so amazing that this is my question it does seem there almost had to be some kickback there had to be something that that would push against this sort of um, penitential piety that you're talking about. And is this where we talk about Petrarch? Is he one of these? Yeah. People yeah. Who so this is Petrarch's story. So Petrarch dies in about 1374. I think it is lives in the middle of the 14th century. And he, um, he, he, you know, highly, really sensitive, brilliant, 
um, uh, intellectual. Um, and, and he reacts against this. You read some of his works and he's full of grief about his sins. He wrote a work called Secretum where he just, he has an imaginary conversation with Augustine, St. Augustine, as, a, as if he's in a confessional with St. Augustine. And he's saying, I'm such a wretched person and I can't, I can't ever conquer all of these sinful mm-hmm. dispositions. And Augustine's message is, you just need to give up on life. You just need to stop hoping for anything in this life. That's how and just he ex- has, those are the words he gives to Augustine. I'm paraphrasing. Right. Yeah, sure, but, but more or less, wow. In this wow, imaginary wow, confessional. Wow. And, and essentially the message of Augustine, therefore representing, you know, Petrarch's understanding of Western Christendom is this life is really a place where you're just going to be miserable until you die and just get ready for death. Now, Father, Petrarch Father, doesn't accept this. Let me ask you something. If you're, okay, so I know you, you're an intellect. Place yourself right there with Petrarch, 14, 1400s? Yeah, uh, 1300s. Late yeah. 1300s. Yeah. Do you think you react the same way, maybe? Because you wouldn't, you won't be fully yeah. aware of the Eastern, of the Christian East. Yeah, do, absolutely. You, as an intellect, might do the same thing. I think I might. I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 I still do. <laughs> I love, uh, we're talking about classical music before we started That's our true. That's right. impressed record. You know, I mean, I love the seculum. I love the seculum as it's been developed. And, and I need to watch that because it can become, you know, a distraction, if not an idol for me as a Christian. But the, what we have beginning with Petrarch is a rebellion against this penitential pie, piety, this, this pessimism a rebellion where, yeah, he writes the book called Secretum that I just uh, summarized, but he doesn't live that way. So you read the book, you I think, see. okay, Augustine convinced him that he should just give up on life. But then you read his letters and he's he's delighting in his dog, you know, and 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 all this stuff. And he's writing to some local prince. Um, it's so modern. He's writing to a local prince who oversees, you know, because he's the law of that, the, that valley or something in France. There's a young man who seduced some young girl and they want to marry, but the young man's going to be executed because this is, you know, uh, a scandal for the community. Mm-hmm. And and he's writing <laughs> to the prince to intervene and say, no, let these lovebirds be happy together. Really? I mean, it's really? such a mod. I mean, you never see this stuff until Petrarch comes forward okay. and he creates this space or rather he. I call it retreats to this space that Augustine had already created Uh with very different intentions. He retreats, Petrarch does, to the seculum in order to defend himself. And back to your question, John, um, I I probably would run with him to the the seculum in that situation because there was so much that was overwhelmingly uh, uh, pessimistic about about that culture at that time. I want to get... I don't want to, I, I, there's a little bit more to the story I want to finish, but it makes me think of something. And we, I said, we might go down a few rabbit. Tri- we don't want to do rabbits. You know what that means in the title <laughs> is things that are just, you know, reproducing online and they aren't worth talking about. So I, I hope this isn't a rabbit trail. Um, but do you, do you sometimes to feel a little bit of empathy for th- this postmodern, like attempt to make meaning out of a, a world that's been pretty meaningless. Do you sometimes, or do do they scare, does postmodernism scare you? <laughs> Did I, I jumped way up, yeah. but. Yeah. You, yeah. Well, yes and no. So, or yes and yes. I'm not sure how to. Yeah. Postmodernism offers, I think, um, Christians, let's just say Christians, um, 
wonderful support in um, in repudiating the modernistic and the modernistic slash atheistic slash anti-Christian forces, intellectual forces especially, but also consumer economic forces. Yes, yes. Um, yes, yes. Of of the past three hundred years. So the Enlightenment was this overwhelming threat to Christian, Christi, Christianity, Christendom, mm-hmm. for 300 years or so, let's say 1750 to 1950. That's exactly And then postmodernism, you know, Foucault and Derrida and all these postmodernist philosophers emerge, and they kind of thumb their nose at Marx, and they thumb their nose at, at, at Freud, and they thumb their nose at other modernists, you know, the Enlightenment Project and all that stuff is exposed as being a power trip. Um, and and all, we won't get into the, all the sure. details, but that's wonderfully liberating and, and can be used by, by Christians, Christian intellectuals, to support our own critique right. of the Enlightenment Project. Yeah, right. an for old sure. Cosmology, an old, co- old cosmology that actually feels new. For, because when I speak to people who are atheists today, when, when you present the old cosmology, the Eastern, the Christian cosmology, they're like, whoa, I never heard of that. So it is, I agree yeah. with you, it provides a, a doorway into a kind of a cool conversation that wasn't really allowed. I want to pick up on a point you you started to make, though, earlier, and that was, you know, is the narrative, the understanding that we find all around us, that Christianity is pessimistic by nature. Okay. You read, you read uh, Nietzsche. He talks about Christianity as like he calls it the worst thing that ever happened to to, oh, to civilization because it's so negative, right? right? Guilt and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, there is a place for penance. There is a place for repentance in Christianity for sure. Asceticism. We don't live, live for this world as Christians. We live for the kingdom of heaven. That's right. But what what I try to do in my my books, what I really think is the case of explaining the origin of our modern problems and everything, it's why I'm writing such a long history, is that because of the disjunction from Eastern Christendom, from the early first millennium, experience of piety and Christian culture we find in the East, still kept alive strongly by the Orthodox Church, as well as some forms of Western Christianity today, when that, that break occurs and it becomes formalized in 1054, we see a trajectory that does ultimately result in a kind of Christianity that's pretty easy to, um, to dismiss mm-hmm. from a modern secular point of view. And it's that Christianity, of course, which is, 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 is being, you know, being attacked by these very kind of really superficial modern voices. But that's the Inquisition, right. right? The Inquisition always comes up. There was no Inquisition in the first millennium. Nope. And there never was in the in the East in any case after the first millennium. The Crusades, the yep. East never fought Crusades. Right. There were some Byzantine wars, especially the ones against Persia under Heracleos, Emperor Heracleos, that had a kind of Christianity against um, against pagandom kind of theme to them. But the church, her bishops never, no. never called on, never called on people to raise arms to fight wars. It was considered a sin to fight such wars. Mm-hmm. Um, and we could go on and on. I mean, purgatory. I like your word adultery. trajectory. I like your word trajectory. Or dis- I use disposition a lot on this on this pod. Once the disposition kicks in, once the trajectory kicks in, it's really hard to to reroute it. You, you know mm-hmm. that break. 1054 uh-huh. and all that goes with it, all the theological and philosophical implications. You're right. The trajectory 
is hard to reroute. And what you get is a series of rebellions against, and they all make sense to me. Now we talk a lot about the, I, we're jumping around. I want to go back to Petrarch, but I, we talk a lot about the, the, the revolutions, the American, the French and, and, and the Russian. And again, you start to see rebellions against that, which might not be working. The problem is, is, and I think this is Petrarch's problem too. The problem is, is you can rebel, but what do you replace you know, what goes in place of that which was, and I'm always interested, it feels like the humanists, Petrarch and, and folks that came after him, they miss something. How would you describe the rest of that story with Petrarch? It seems like he's doing something human. And then what happens? Does it go yeah. sideways? What happens is it's not just what Petrarch and his followers, the 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 uh, the 15th century Italian, the more famous Italian humanists like Pico della Mirandola or um, people like that. Um, and then, you know, Thomas More, who writes the book called Utopia, Utopia you know, right. and mm -hmm. gives us a word to you to, to work with, uh, write books around and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Those humanists, um, they were doing their thing, but they were still Christians for the most part. They didn't see themselves as, as revolutionaries. What happened is cultural revolution. What happened is, is that the Reformation um, took place. And, and I argue strongly in my book, The Age of Division, that it's just the extension of the papal reformation. I mean, usually Protestant reformation is seen as, that. you know, against papacy, against Roman Catholic. But I see it as part of the same story from an Eastern point of view. It's just another wave of reformational Christianity Gosh. in different form. It makes sense, Father, when you read or read about or read Calvin. Calvin's just using Augustine and then yeah. he's coming right out of the papal. You're right. His language is so similar. It's true. Absolutely. I mean, and Calvin's dark great and example. scary. <laughs> yeah. There's a continuity there for sure. And, and a lot of the reform people, uh, sorry, Protestant reformers had goals that are comparable to the effort to evangelize the seculum. Luther was all about evangelizing the seculum. The Puritans, Puritans were all about evangelizing the seculum. They couldn't stand the dancing and the and the celebration of Christmas. They actually banned Christmas, the Calvinist Puritans in uh, New England and, 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 and so forth. Um, they were, but the really big thing there, John, was the wars of Western religion. Okay. Now, anyone who goes through high school or college in our culture in the West hears about the wars of religion. That is to say, like Christian um, Christians, Roman Catholic and Protestant fight these horrible wars against each other in the yep. 16th and especially 17th century. Constantly. Those were wars of Western religion. There were no Orthodox participants in these wars of any significance at all. Mm -hmm. They were Roman Catholics against Protestants fighting a, a kind of a you know, a, a Western war, a series of wars. Yep. When those horrible wars are over, it is such a disgrace for Christian civilization to look back on millions of people killed in the name of the God of love, cruelly, horribly, uh, the rape of Magdeburg, unbelievable story uh, during the uh, Thirty Years' War. Um, it is such a scandal for the educated of, of, of the West that they they simply they're, they're just kind of done with it they just they move on now they take what petrarch and those other humanists up to more had begun to pioneer a secular humanism and then they really they settle on that exclusively now if those wars hadn't happened 
uh, we wouldn't have seen the Enlightenment and its anti-Christian character with Rousseau and Voltaire. This is the reach for for science, and then I would call scientism. This is the reach <clears throat> to turn that method of studying material into a method for living a life as a culture. The, the scientism, maybe you can speak to that. Maybe we're going off the rails a little bit, but I think what you just said is perfect, spot on historically, which is the if you read Jefferson and all the founding fathers, they just don't want any part of that world. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. they go down another path. And I find them all reaching for Francis Bacon, all these guys reaching for science as the method. You know, the church had a method, even the Catholic church mm-hmm. with its papal reforms, but the East always had a method for making sense of the world around you. And I find like science becomes a replacement. I don't know what you think about that, but. I think so. It's a revolution in cosmology. So no longer do we have, we have a dualistic cosmology uh, that was maybe pioneered by Augustine without these intentions. Augustine's a saint. Augustine was a holy man. Augustine was a faithful Christian, but he did offer the West this model of a cosmology in which there's this seculum, this secular area of neutrality. And Francis Bacon, you mentioned him, 17th century, he's writing in the context of those religious wars. Descartes actually fought on both sides of those religious wars for That's a while. Crazy. And, and they both developed this dualism. Descartes, philosophical dualism, mind and 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 matter, right? Right. And 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 bacon. Uh, develops this conviction that, you know, science is going to solve human problems, even writes a utopian book in which he talks about paradise being recovered through the scientific method, rather than, you know, through asceticism and, and love for one. Right. That method's over. Right. So there's a kind of a, I hope what amounts to something like a relevant Watar question for you. All of this history for people who don't care too much about history I, I already see its relevance because I love history and taught it and everything. And I think you and I could go on and on. But just picture someone sitting in their chair, they're flipping through Apple News or whatever they're doing. And they're trying to figure out there's something afoot. And how does the story really apply to them? How, how does the change in cosmology lead to personal despair? Or if it's not despair, a, a deep sense of a loss of a spiritual life? Like, what, who cares? So what? So, yeah, it's a complex. I mean, it's a complex question, Jonathan. But but it's. I think it can be answered in that what the story tells us. If this story is correct, or or you know, he's correct on on a lot of points, the story tells us that the West, uh, as a integral civilization, had something in it that got deformed, and it, out of this became there arose this kind of counterfeit culture this counterfeit system of beliefs and values, which centered upon the human experience in this world, Mm. the seculum, secular humanism. And secular humanism itself could not sustain itself. And by World War I, Russian Revolution, Stalinism, Nazism, stock market crash, whatever you want to point to, um, the consumer culture we live in today in which we're just products of desire and we are nothing but our desires. Humanism is a counterfeit of, of, of cr- traditional Christianity. So you, you, traditional Christianity provides what I call, uh, what I talk a lot about. It's a transformational imperative. There, Christianity has built within it, traditional Christianity has built within it, the need for transformation, spiritual transformation. 
that spiritual transformation becomes harder and harder to achieve in a atmosphere or a culture of, of pessimism, such mm-hmm. as I described before Petrarch. Mm-hmm. Petrarch takes that transformational imperative and he projects it into the seculum That's right. so that the secular neutral, spiritually neutral uh, area of, of civilization becomes the area where Francis Bacon and other scientists after fill, him. They fill it up. They fill it up and they they live out that 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 transformational imperative in a secular rather than spiritual form, and the result is is this is it creates a a satisfying um, the satisfaction of the need of of Western culture, but it's a counterfeit to traditional Christianity, leaving people dissatisfied, empty. And unfilled by, you know, trips to Walmart, to use your example. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also, as you were speaking, I thought this, it also, it is transformation. I mean, think about what we tell, you know, 11-year-olds, what do you want to become when you, what do you want to be when you grow older, as if they're not something already. So there's this deep, profound, I always found that as the one of the most psychologically challenging questions I ever had when I was 11. What am, what am I want to be when I grow older? That's terrifying. That's a mm. type of, you know, continuous transformation and you have to do it to yourself. So there's a lot of fear in that. But also to what end? What's the talos? It, I mean, when you listen, I, I there's a lot of folks online right now, Pajot and others. There, there is no talos in the change. There's no purpose. It's just for change's sake. I think of it almost like a, a hit of cocaine, like crack cocaine. It feels good to change. It feels good to lose 10 pounds. But why again? Well, why mm-hmm. am I in that transformational almost addiction? It, mm-hmm. Toward what? I mean, can can you help us? What do we what's the modern secular what are we changing toward is there an answer i don't i don't i don't think so yeah you know one of the things that i i point to um you know when i think about this talk about this is paul's statement in romans uh he says do not be conformed conformed i like the, the language he uses here do not be conformed to this world but be transformed be transformed and i think that's what traditional christianity calls on uh, us to do is to be transformed spiritually, not to be conformed to some model that we have in this world of mm-hmm. career success, to use that example of, you know, asking an 11 year old what he wants right. to be, right. uh, or, or uh, losing 10 pounds of weight or something like that, or having a great fulfilling, you know, relationship of six months with someone, you know, when you're in your 20s, but making no commitments and going on to someone else afterward. Right. These things will spend themselves and they'll exhaust themselves and they'll leave us with no, uh, no uh, telos, the, 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 no satisfaction. So perhaps the humanist experiment, the Petrarch's experiment, maybe not him so much, but eventually it ends in a, a secular world, a secular culture. There's nothing transcendent about the transformation. Does that feel right to you? Is that might be what happening in 2021? Yeah, I, I think that's it. I think the absence of transcendence becomes uh, um, a terrible uh, weakness of Western culture, beginning with the Enlightenment, even earlier, but but certainly with the Enlightenment, when when Christianity is is largely rejected as a legitimate um, source of Western values after the um, wars of Western religion, and beginning with the Enlightenment, you mentioned. Thomas Jefferson, I mentioned Rousseau and Voltaire, mm-hmm. 
what you get, what we find happening is, is that there's this um, assertion that this world is the only legitimate space in which to act out on the, tra the transformational imperative. And so there's revolutions like the French Revolution that take place, but that shocks everyone because of its it's it's unrestrained violence yeah, right and so you get a you get a reaction to the french revolution called the romantic movement where people turn inward and then if you look at this john i mean if you look at the romantics they were desperately finding seeking something transcendent so if you look at beethoven's music for instance he's trying to make music that's going to transform the world you know and if you don't understand me and my music you know, what's wrong with you, you know, shaking his fist at the heavens when he dies, you know, uh, right. by legend and so forth. You look at Hegel with his world spirit. Talk about a invented transcendence. The world spirit of Hegel mm -hmm. is this largely kind of invented idea that the that that the the spiritual realm realizes itself through human affairs. Right. You look right. at someone like um, Emerson in America and his oversoul, which he really just draws from the Hindus, uh, he gets this idea that that there's some sort of impersonal, uh, transcendent reality to human society that gives society its meaning. But no one really can buy this. No one believes this stuff. And by the by, the early stages of the Romantic movement, people are going crazy over this. I mean, you look at the story of Romantic painters and composers, and especially poets. They're all killing themselves. They're all yep. writing you know, works of uh, ranting and, and raving. Look at Tchaikovsky. I love Tchaikovsky. I just love Tchaikovsky. But you look at his story. It's just this agonizing, desperate effort to find something to hold on to. And at the end of his life, he, he composes his greatest work, I think, the Sixth Symphony, the Pathétique, which is this just soul-crushing uh, cry um, into the into the darkness of, of nothingness because it's all emotions at that point. And it's because the circuit is closed. It's because the transformation is for in and of it's for itself. And yes. It's, which makes a ton of sense, which again is why I have empathy for postmodern, not just philosophers, but people struggling in the postmodern world. I get what they're doing. I get what they're groping for. I, I'm probably one of them. Huh? And so how do you hold on to your love of, of Beethoven and Tchaikovsky, even as they sort of tell a story of despair in a lot of ways? How do you do that? Good question. I'm not really <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, I, 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 I would say that at my best of times, I can detach from them. Sure. The story I tell in Age of Utopia is, you know, has a lot to say about Beethoven, Tchaikovsky and company. And I, I'm worried that when it's released and people read it, they're going to think I hate <laughs> romantic classical music because I'm just exposing what I think are the weaknesses of this false transcendence. Um, but that's probably a good sign because I think it's detachment. It's the ability to you know, enjoy these beautiful things that, that exactly. the secular culture has produced. And, and the West has done this more than, that's why the West and its secular culture has been so profoundly transformative on a global scale because of the, the core Christian transformational imperative it inherited from, early, from the first millennium. Wow. Even when secularized, and especially because it became secularized, produced this, 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 this explosive and brilliant culture 
that the rest of the world is just in, you know, in awe over. Am I uh, re using your words? The motivation of a young man or woman who goes off to Mount Athos to be a monk, their motivation is transformation and transcendence. That engine, which changes the world, let's just be honest, Christianity changes the world, Christ is incarnate. But that engine itself, I wouldn't, let's not call it hijacked, let's be fair. That, en that engine is moved into the world, into the secular, and it runs hard, it runs fast, <laughs> and people use it. And the world does get transformed. We, we have to, we have to, I like what you're saying. You do have to get it credit. But the question is, is can, how long can we run on that engine? How long can we keep putting gas in that if it doesn't reach something transcendent? Yeah. And I don't know how long and who knows, maybe we're both wrong. I don't know. Maybe this is how the world works. But you said something really interesting. You're not going to be, be nice to me in a minute. I, <laughs> I didn't call you out, but I see that you love classical music and I love it. And it makes perfect sense to me. And you helped me because I love reggae music. And if you listen to the Rastas, like I, I had some on earlier tonight, the Rastas are very aware of Babylon. And Babylon is this notion in their music of that thing you're calling the secular machine, the consumer machine, the thing that got really caught on fire with the new world and they sing against it all the time. Now they also sing about Haile Selassie being a God. And I learned detachment in loving reggae music. I can listen to it and appreciate it and understand it. And I really enjoy all the bass rhythms and all, all the one drop and everything. But I know there's something right there that I can't fully embrace, but I do enjoy it. Does that make me crazy? I love it. I don't know that Rasta music and classical music can go together, but yeah. somehow I feel like they do right now. That's I grew up that. listening to the clash right in the 1980s and they were influenced by, by a lot of uh, Rasta music and so forth. The right. clash, Yeah. Well, we're all swimming in it. We're all swimming in modernity. We can't really help it. And I love the idea that we just went over is that the Puritan inclination to strike it all. I mean, you can, you can try. It hasn't gone well in history when people do that. So what, how would you end this story? You're going to end the story with a couple more books. How, how does this all look to you right now in this new world we're in? Is it going to bend back, do you think, towards something old? A lot of people are saying that there will be a, a return to something more, how should we say, traditional. Do you see that happening? I see something like that going on right now. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, and, and there are other people who are more prescient than I am. You know, I'm, I'm, my, my focus is obviously on the past. I'm thinking right. about the present, studying the past, and, and I'm not a good cultural analyst. Um, but I think there is something going on right now in the culture. There's a kind of a loss of confidence. You mentioned the postmodern movement, for instance. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably a sign that the the modernity project is not going to sustain us forever, but what we're going to go back to, I don't know. I mean, there were prophetic Christian voices like Nicholas Verdiaev in the middle of the 20th century talking about the new middle ages, you know, and yeah. he wasn't the only one. Um, there were a lot of people talking about how, you know, humanism has robbed humanity of, of, of what makes humanity really human <laughs> 
And he talks about dehumanization. It's really an ironic and interesting argument he makes. Secular humanism dehumanizes humanity because when we're no longer linked to God, the transcendent God who is imminent as well through the incarnation, we no longer bear his image. We're no longer deified by his presence in our lives sacramentally and liturgically. Wow. When that happens, yeah, what do we get? Stalin, Nazism, uh, American consumerism, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, you get the you get the Tower of Babel. You get people taking control and building the culture and the image of themselves. Oh, I was going to say my answer is uh, nihilism, an age of nihilism. That's the tentative title of my final volume. It takes I, I, us up to the thank you for uh, that. Cold wars. Thank you for that. I really want to thank you for coming on. And I really liked it. We were getting excited. We were getting into it. I really liked it. Thank you for, for coming on. And it really helps support our work. So um, from Washington, I hope you liked that. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Yeah, it was good, John. Thanks for having me on. And, and I'll look forward to another, to another conversation sometime. And we will definitely do it. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into the stuff that was just popping here at the end as our internet went bad. But I really want to thank you. Um, peace to you. Let's stay in touch, okay? Thank you, Father. Wonderful. Yeah, John, anytime. Okay. Take care and uh, see you soon. Thanks for coming. Bye-bye. Well, Father, as he signs off, Father John Strickland and I ripping some history. To you, Father, Shanice Gagimarjos. That's set at a KP table, sometimes called a Supra in the Georgian Republic. We're deeply invested in that tradition because that tradition is basically what we do at First Things Foundation. And you are being asked, even at this moment, to consider contributing to our work. We love reoccurring donors, 5, 10, 15, 20, 100, however many dollars you can put into our pockets. Well, each month, if you do that, we know where we can work and who we can help. And there's a lot, there's a lot to be done. Go look at our website, www.firstthings.org, first-things.org. Check it out. But mostly, keep coming on to the podcast because we're building beautiful networks with people who, well, help us do what I think of as very beautiful things. At First Things Foundation, where we help local people, local often impoverished people, realize their vision for their own future and their own idea of a better life. This is John Hears. This is Watar. Au revoir. Kagimarjos. Nakvamdis. Kambufo. Nawe. See you later.